Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about Daily Daf Differently, please visit jcastnetwork.org slash ddd. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Daily Daf Differently. I'm David Greenstein. Today we look at Daf Mem, page 40, the last page of Tractate Beitza, Masechet Beitza. As the Talmud has been discussing various questions of uh, observance of Yom Tov, we also get a little bit of a picture of the kind of reality that the Talmud imagines this taking place within. And the sacred time that is a holiday is observed, of course, by real people who live in real places. And when they interact with their neighbors and friends, the places that they live in spread out over larger areas. The image that we have in this page is of quite an extensive dispersed community that yet seeks to observe Yom Tov together. So the top of our page, in the middle of a Mishnah that began on the previous page, talks about someone who has invited guests to come for a holiday meal. And these guests are coming from beyond the Trum, beyond the 3,000-foot area that extends beyond the town in which the host lives. So we're talking about people who are living quite a distance away from the host, and they're coming to celebrate Yom Tov, have a common meal together at the host's home. And like every holiday meal in our tradition, uh, the person, the host, cooks too much and has a lot of leftovers. And the question that the Mishnah asks is, when you want to send the leftovers home with the guests, how are you going to be able to do that since the guests live so far away? And of course, they are observing Yom Tov in the, uh, in the imagination of the Mishnah. And therefore, they're going to be observing the limitations of how to travel and how far to travel. They may have set up an Eruv, which will overcome the distance limitation, but they're still going to have to go quite a distance with their packages of food. And the question is, are they going to be able to do that since the food belonged to the host? And the host is only able to travel until the edge of his spatial parameter. The answer is that the host has to make provision for their taking their gifts before Yom Tov begins. He has to, while they haven't yet arrived, before Yom Tov starts, he has to bequeath the leftovers or the projected leftovers that he's going to give them, package up and, and, and have them take away. He has to give that to them before Yom Tov begins. And in that sense, they can enjoy the holiday together and even take home the delicious leftovers and remember the beautiful meal that their host gave as long as provision was made ahead of time. Of course, this is one of the major themes of this entire tractate, how preparation is so important in order to be able to fully enjoy the holiday once it arrives. 
the idea of an extended space within which Jewish life was taking place is also the subject of the final Mishnah of our tractate. Here the Mishnah talks about taking hold of one of one animals from the herds or flocks that one has in order to slaughter it on Yom Tov. And the question is, which animals of one's flocks and herds can be considered available for Yom Tov use? Why should that be a problem? Because the animals themselves may be grazing far, far away from one's home and maybe even living uh, for extended periods of time way beyond the habitation of the owner. So the Mishnah makes a distinction between animals that are midbariot, wilderness animals, which cannot be taken on Yom Tov for a Yom Tov meal, and bayatot, the domesticated animals. And we're not talking about wild versus domesticated. We're talking about animals that are domesticated, but are they living close to home or are they living far away, too far away? And then the discussion becomes... How do we define too far away? What constitutes a wilderness grazing animal and what constitutes a close-to-home grazing animal? The definition is a matter of dispute. The sages say that animals that graze far away from one's home, they leave when the rainy season is over and don't come back until the rainy season begins. Such animals are off-limits on Yom Tov. The animals that live close by are available. Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, Rabbi, says that no, we have to expand the definition and those animals that at least come back uh, during the uh, uh, rainy season should be considered available anytime. And he proposes that wilderness animals are the ones who stay far away from the settled area all the time. The concept here is if they're not available, they are mukta. And the Talmud says, it seems that Rabbi at least has some kind of definition of muktzah, but we know that Rabbi is on record as saying that Rabbi Shimon's opinion, Rabbi Shimon was the one who said that there is no muktzah on Yonto, is the correct opinion, or so it seems. The case was a case of dates, which are uh, collected, and then they must sit uh, in a storage in order to ripen. They can't ripen on the tree. And Rabbi was asked, what about these dates? Are these dates muktzah? Are they available for use or not? And he was on record as saying that according to Rabbi Shimon, only certain drying fruits are considered muktzah, and these are not. How do we reconcile these two traditions. Does Rabbi Yehuda Nasi accept the concept of Muktza or not? And as the Tractate of Beitzah concludes, it offers us three possibilities. If you wish, you can say A. Or if you wish, you can say B. Or if you wish, you can say C. So we have three different endings to this Tractate. It's almost like a postmodern novel where you choose which way you would like the tractate to end. It's possible that we analogize 
these dates to the other kinds of dried fruits that even Rabbi Shimon would agree are mukta, or it's possible that Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi does not agree with Rabbi Shimon, but he was simply speaking on Rabbi Shimon's behalf, or we could say that Rabbi does not accept mukta, but he's arguing that the sages who do accept mukta should limit their own concept. Any way you look at it, in the end, the last words of our tractate are that the sages reject Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi's argument. And that's the end of the tractate. This is somewhat special. Many, many times the tractate is concluded with an agadic, non-halachic discussion something that brings a spiritual message or an ethical message to bear on the overall discussions of the tractate. In this particular case, we have no such effort. Instead, the tractate leaves us with a multiplicity of interpretations of a halachic discussion and with an argument that is unresolved. Perhaps that is its own message. Perhaps the message that Tractate wants to leave us with is that it is possible to mull over these questions again and again and again. And the glory of our tradition is that we constantly are able to find new aspects, new facets of issues. We can disagree about them and we can continue to learn from each other. May that be the case as we continue to study and the further tractates. With this, we conclude Masechet Beitza, and the traditional saying is Hadran Alach Masechet Beitza Vahadrach Alan. We have reviewed Masechet Beitza, and you, Masechet Beitza, we personify the tractate. You, Masechet Beitza, have gone through us. We pledge not to forget you, and we pray that you, Masechet Beitza, never forget us as well. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently, and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the opening and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epichorus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.